when I did my first three-month retreat at home, um, my partner of the time went off to Insight Meditation Society and I decided to do it at home and um, different students brought me food, left it on the doorstep and I didn't have any interactions with anyone during that time. And I created an altar in the living room and a friend of mine had gone to Target. Do you have Target here? I'd gone to Target and had found this good deal of, on a Buddha for $35. <laughs> and so I had my good deal Buddha in the middle of the altar. And just in case, because I'd never done this before to do a three-month retreat by myself, I took what is considered a kernel of the teaching uh, and wrote it out and put it in the hands of my good deal Buddha. And it said, the Buddha teaches one thing and one thing only, suffering and the ending of suffering. And I just love that. It just feels like over and over again, it points us directly to the truth about what we're doing here. And it really was a wonderful guide to have that as a reminder because sometimes I, I would like be walking mindfully from the living in room into the dining room and I'd be like, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing here? And I'd be like, I should just chuck this in. And I mean, usually I don't have that kind of doubt, but I did on that retreat. It came up a lot like, I don't know if I should be doing this. <laughs> just it doesn't seem like anything is happening and it's really hard work. And then I would come and sit in front of the altar and there would be that saying again. And I, I find that it's really particularly liberating because it goes against the culture of Western democracies that try to teach us that life is all about central pleasure and comfort and acquisition. And in this way, it feels very radical and revolutionary because it's cutting away at that and pointing us directly to what we really are most interested in and that is our happiness. That, that is what we're most interested in, is ending our suffering and cultivating our happiness. And so it, in that way, it feels like it goes directly to the core of our greatest concern, which is how do we end our suffering and the suffering of others and the suffering of the world. And that was the Buddha's concern as well, because it said that when he, his mind opened in uh, his enlightenment experience, that it opened to such an incredible extent that he knew all there was to know about the world. Everything that there was. And if you can imagine for a moment that that opening was so profound that he saw into eons of lifetimes of his own lifetime and tracked each lifetime and the karma of it, all the way through to the moment where he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. So a lot, a lot of knowledge. And he said, I'm not interested in talking about any of it. I'm only interested in talking about suffering and the ending of suffering, because that is the core, we could say koan, the core koan of why we're here, why, why we're alive why we're here. So I love that. And I also love it because it acknowledges the reality of our experience. Not that there aren't moments of deep love 
gratitude, well-being, ease and contentment, incredible joy, depth of, of unity. There are all these things and, and there's something deeper than that, the Buddha says, and that's been my experience as well and probably yours as well which is, and underneath that, there is suffering, some place that isn't resolved yet, some place that isn't fully, um, that hasn't fully come to rest, we could say. And so it is quite liberating to have wise teachers over these eons acknowledging our reality over and over again and saying, yes, what we're experiencing is true. It's not, it's not, um, um, not true. It's true. And, and let's turn towards it and acknowledge it. And then, not only did he acknowledge this, but he also saw what the origin of this stress was. And the traditional image for this dis-ease or stress that we experience in our lives or discomfort or suffering, there are all kinds of different words to talk about it, is uh, the axle of a, of a, a, a wooden axle going into a, the middle of a wooden wheel, This because this is what they used in his lifetime and that the axle doesn't fit properly. So the wheel doesn't go easily because it keeps slipping. And that's the image the Buddha used, that, that even when things are groovy and going well, there is this place in our lives where it's not quite fitting and going easily and well. So, um, there's this acknowledgement, and then he looked at these dynamics, and he said, and there's a reason for it. And he looked in, and he saw, this is the reason for our suffering. And it is the dynamic of attachment, of grasping, of clinging, of clutching, of owning, of having, of wanting of desiring, and its opposite, of pushing away, of hating, of turning away from, of pushing down, of um, um, fear is included in this. So of grasping and aversion, he said, this is the dynamic that causes suffering. And he said that this dynamic or attachment got expressed in four particular areas and that it's lovely to, um, to name them and to bring them into consciousness for our own exploration. And the first is our relationship to sensual pleasures. The second is um, our relationship to opinions and ideas and philosophies. The third is our relationship to what he called rituals, but what we could call our habit, our habits, our habit patterns. And the fourth one is how we are deluded into thinking that we are separate from the natural process of life into a solid object we call me or mine. So what the Buddha is saying is that these dynamics are living inside of us. And so it's really great to see them because unless we turn towards them and keep seeing them, then they keep playing out in our lives and not only bring suffering to ourselves, but suffering to others. So you know, um, I, just to mention, just to mention it, that one of the ways that Monsanto um, has um, what's the word 
has created, that's the bad word, but anyway, has such incredible profit is that they persuaded African governments to buy their seeds. And the seeds that those governments have sold to poor farmers, don't those, those seeds, when they um, come into plants, don't actually create seeds themselves. So those farmers have to keep buying seeds. It's brought devastation. It's brought devastation to small farmers all through Africa. And that, the reason for that amongst, and I know each one of us could spend hours telling stories of what attachment to central pleasures um, um, does in our world. It, it creates such suffering because it, that kind of profit brings resources and people want that want those resources people we we keep forgetting that our happiness doesn't lie in having pleasurable experiences and we know on the simplest level in our meditation that when we have a beautiful breath or when we have moments that are free of pain, or when the mind stops, there is no way we have an experience like that where we don't want it again. We see that wanting, you know? And it, it just comes up. I watch it, it's amazing. It's like I see that subtle movement of the mind to try and control experience to have another pleasant experience. That is just the nature of mind to do that. So on the most, you know, on the most subtle level of meditation experiences, or to, you know, the um, to some of the intense fights that we have in, in relationships around our environment, like who likes the windows open and who likes them closed, you know, that kind of ease around temperature and I, I you know until I learned about dual electric blankets I had some pretty bad fights with you know whether the window was open or closed in the bedroom <laughs> it, it, it just it just is and there's there's something um there's something so core about it, isn't there? That when we feel like we're not getting the kind of um, sensory experience that we want, that it could almost feel life-threatening. And, and it, just how deep that, that experience is felt. So, to give you another example, on another three-month retreat at IMS, it was Thanksgiving, and there were two lunches. And because my name is Wiseman, I was at the second lunch. And I walked through the dining room before the first lunch was served. And there at the back were all these pies. Those of you who know me know I love sweets. So there were pumpkin pies and apple pies and all these beautiful pies. You know, and then the usual thing, nut loaf and gravy and sweet potatoes and things. So anyway, there was the first lunch and I was diligently doing my walking outside, lifting, placing, shifting. And I watched how much my mind went to thoughts of Thanksgiving lunch. And then it was Thanksgiving lunch and I waited and I was close to the front and I walked into the room and I saw that there were no pies on the table in the back of the room. And before I'd even served myself the nut loaf, I broke silence, I went into the kitchen and they said, you've forgotten to bring the pies out for the second lunch. And the cook looked at me and said, oh, no, no, we put them all out for the first lunch. They must have eaten them all. I rushed out of the dining room into my room, flung myself on the bed and <laughs> sobbed.
So, you know, so just it it just to acknowledge, you know, when we're meditating and little things become super overblown, right? That's what happens when we get to see. We get to see the reality of our minds and the ways that we are attached to having pleasurable experiences. It's not wrong or bad, per se, to enjoy the gifts and blessings that life brings us. That isn't what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha is acknowledging that that while they are deliciously experienced, that we can't put all our eggs in that basket in the misunderstanding that it's that that's going to bring us ultimate freedom and happiness. And it isn't. And why? Why isn't it? Because the Buddha said, if we could control life so that we always had pleasant experiences, then I wouldn't bother doing this teaching. Even for people who access very deep jhanas, and according to the Buddha, I haven't been there, so I can't speak from direct experience, go to the heavenly realms where they live for thousands of years, even that comes to an end and they come down again. So basically what the Buddha is saying, it comes to an end. No more pies. And then you have to deal. And so he's saying it really helps. It helps to come into a relationship with sensual pleasures where we understand that they in themselves cannot bring us lasting happiness. I know intellectually we know this, but it's actually very deep. It's very deep to relinquish that kind of control, to be so open that it actually doesn't matter what the circumstances are that we find ourselves in. I I think that is a profound freedom. And so some of you have heard me talk about a a teacher who uh, now actually is in Seattle, um, a Tibetan teacher who managed to escape a Chinese camp where he had been tortured and he had climbed over the, I was going to say the Alps, that shows you how tired I am, um, the Himalayas and had landed up in um, Calcutta and was on the streets begging. So he had come from being, you know, on, on, on one of those amazing thrones, the head of, of uh, some monasteries in Tibet, very renowned teacher, to living in rags on the streets in Calcutta. Some American tourists there walked by and recognized him. And, you know, basically said, Rinpoche, Rinpoche, this is terrible, this is terrible. We're going to have to take you to America, which they did, and built him a very beautiful center, another high throne, you know, with the yellow and gold brocade and all the bowls, and you, you know those, those thrones, they're amazing. And um, someone came up to the Rinpoche and said, you must be so relieved you know, that you're, that you're now here in these beautiful conditions. And he said, no difference. No difference. That's the relinquishment of attachment to sensual pleasures. No difference. That is a profound freedom. That according to different circumstances, because we don't know you know, we don't know what, ha- what, what, ha- what will happen in our lives. We don't know what will happen with global warming and the different circumstances, at least for those of us who are, are younger, might end up living in. We don't know. And if we, 
if we really are orienting towards peace and freedom, then it necessarily needs to include the kinds of ways that we are attached to comfort and sensual pleasures. And just to reiterate, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy them when we have them. I'm sure the Rinpoche enjoyed them, but he wasn't attached to them. Yeah? That's the difference. So then, uh, and so then the second one, opinions, being attached to our opinions, being attached to how we see and understand all the things about the earth and life, including climate change and politics and the Dharma and issues on gender and everything else, you know? So I, I have so many times felt outraged in some of my experiences in monasteries because of the disparate treatment in genders and not to say that I don't think that's an issue, but I was definitely attached to my way of looking at things. I remember on a trip somewhere meeting a South African, and usually when I meet a South African, it's like, hi, I actually don't meet that many South Africans, even though we're like, there's millions of us living outside of South Africa. So, hi, you know, lovely to meet and, you know, checking and where were you born, such and such. And this woman, lovely connection, happened to mention, yeah, you know, I think Africans were much better under apartheid than they are now. You know, they were really looked after. And it was amazing. I just totally didn't want to continue talking to this woman. I was like, I am not interested in you. I'm not interested in the kind of person you are, you are, your challenges, your issues. I'm like, you just have the wrong politics. It was so great to see. You know, it was so great to see, one, that I felt so outraged, and two, that I, I did not see her humanity because she had different politics from me. And that's what the Buddha is pointing to. We know that already wars are fought around our opinions of what religion is, of, of um, how people should live. You know, it's, uh, um, um, the, the amazing example of the man who killed I think it was 70 plus teenagers in, um, on the island of Norway who were at a labor camp. Brezhne, it wasn't Brezhnev, it was Brez something. And um, he was tried and he said, I'm not sorry that I killed them because the labor party is destroying Norway by letting in so many immigrants. That belief that obscured the humanity of those children, and he was so close to it that he said, I'm not sorry, even in his trial. That, I mean, it's definitely I was on one end and he was on the other, but it's the same dynamic. When we see Republicans if Republicans represent an, a different perspective from the one you hold, or maybe it's the Democrats or Green Party or whoever, whoever it is, the people in Monsanto, when we hold perspectives that actually distort our relationships so that we don't see the humanity of others means that we have lost our, our humanity means that we are actually in suffering because there's a way we're holding onto ideas that stops us from living in a relatedness that is open and free and peaceful. And we know that 
because of the ways that we all in, in our group sharing and interviews have shared a, about the impact of our negative stories that we carry about ourselves and others, also opinions and ideas, you know, that are judgment, judgmental about ourselves and judgmental about others. And we are so attached to them that we will keep on having the same idea that's kind of like whipping ourselves, right? Could you make it a little louder? That we are whipping ourselves over and over again because we're attached to the idea, even though we can see that it's hurting us. The Buddha actually said that no enemy hurts us as much as our own mind. And that is true, isn't it? I mean, if someone said to me what I sometimes say to myself, I would be outraged, you know? So it's not just positive attachment, it's also, thank you, it's also negative attachment as well. We are attached to both our positive stories and our negative stories about ourselves. And it is just really beautiful to see. And then the third one is attachment to what the Buddha called rituals, but really how we do things. So, I know you all come from the beautiful practice of using form as a way to cultivate mindfulness and to be present. And it can also flip into, if you don't do it properly, you know, oh, look, that person didn't do it properly. They're messed up, you know, or they're not paying attention. How it can flip into judgment. That's attachment to ritual. Or, for example, I, I don't like driving a lot. So when I drive, I like to go to the shortest point from A to B. And if I'm with someone who takes a long way around, I am like gritting my teeth. Like, this is the wrong way. Why did you choose this way? What is the matter with you? You know, that attachment to the way we do things. I was staying with someone recently, and I noticed that the honey was in, you know, a particular cupboard. So when I was cleaning up, I put the honey in a cupboard, and she came over and she moved it an inch, and she said, no, the honey should be here. That's attachment to ritual, control, the, our habit of doing things in particular ways. And we know that already because we can feel the contraction around it. So, and then lastly, the attachment to self. We um, have mentioned that already. Just to say it again from a different angle. When Europeans first came to this country, and started to enclose the land, the indigenous people couldn't understand what they were doing because they understood the earth to be land that was itself freely given and open to everyone in the same way that we might think about the air, that the air is freely given. That relationship or like the planets, that the planets do not belong to anyone, or the stars, or the sun, that it's part of life and nature, and that is life, the expression of life. And how could you, how could you own it? That understanding of the land also includes our bodies. How can you own this natural process like the earth in its natural expression? How can you own this life force just like the sun being a life force? Or how could you own 
the if you put our blood under a microscope and you see all these things, you know, going around and around, how could you own those? It's part of the blood of every human being. You can't own everyone's blood, right? It's life. It's blood is part of life in the body and it's living. How could you own molecules in the world? You can't. It's part of life. This body is part of that life too. Our thoughts and our ideas are part of that too. And the Buddha is saying, how can you own it? Because it's a natural process. And when you try to own it, what happened to the Europeans in enclosing that land and then having to defend it because they didn't want anyone else coming in meant guns and war and fighting. What it means for us is that kind of defense of now I have to protect myself. And it, you know, and it is so deep. I, I see it working with the um, challenges that I'm working with now with my body. And they see the fear coming up because it feels like it's my body, you know? And that I, I am going to lose it. But my body is my body, actually. And I've also had that experience where it is free of ownership. And then when something happens, it triggers that old relationship of deep fear of, oh my God, I'm going to lose something. It's okay. It's part of the process of, of holding it. It's like, yes, this is what happens. Just like when we have a pleasant meditation experience, we want to repeat it. We want to control our, our process to repeat it. It's the same with our bodies and our minds. When it feels challenged, we want to control it and hold on to it. And like, no, I don't want this to happen. This is my body. But of course, the reality is that it's not my body. Because if it was my body, I would be able to control it. But I can't directly control my body. So it's not my body. My ideas and my opinions are not mine either. Because if they were, I, I would... Um, 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 be able to create a world, my world, in exact replication but according to my ideas and opinions, and I can't. So there is this reality that the Buddha is asking us to acknowledge and turn towards because in seeing it, in bowing down to it. Oh, here is my fear. Here is my control. Here is my insistence that things should be this way. By allowing it in the field of our awareness, by being generous and acknowledging it and saying, oh, here it is. You know, here is this misperception of reality. And even if it's a misperception, the lived experience of it is very real. Here it is, by turning towards it over and over, what happens is that that begins to loosen and it begins to open. We know already from our experiences that the moments where we are free of attachment and holding and clinging and desiring and wanting are moments of freedom. And so it takes in the place where there's holding this practice of relinquishment and renunciation. It takes a renunciation to be able to say, I see it and I'm not going to feed that storyline, that idea, that dynamic. I see it and I acknowledge it. And I don't want to feed it because I know from my past experience that there is a deep freedom in relinquishing 
the holding and attachment. So um, this is one of my favorite stories. I'd like to read it. Oh, oh, before I do, what it reminds me of is um, two things that strike me about uh, Achen Cha. One is that he always used the same cup for his tea. And when someone asked him about it, he said, I relate to my cup as though it were already broken. So enjoying it and also each time acknowledging that it might break. So acknowledging its impermanence at the same time. I think that's so beautiful. So holding it, appreciating it, and acknowledging already up front that it's going to be broken. And then the other thing he said, he had a series of strokes. The last one left him unconscious actually for 10 years. But after the first one, he said, I can't find any mindfulness. And I feel so moved by that because I myself, under some of the medication that I've um, um, been taking, have not been able to find mindfulness. And that is such a relinquishment to be at peace in not being able to find mindfulness. So beautiful. So that sort of relinquishment means that whatever is happening, whatever is happening, this is the vision, whatever is happening, there is peace. That's really what we're talking about. Whatever condition we find in our mind and our body, there is peace. And the path to it, the Buddha is so explicit, the path to it is to keep pointing to the places where we are attached and, and directing our attention there so that we can explore it, experience it, and allow it in the understanding that the story around it is not true, that the perception around it is not true. So, I can't, you know, I never found out the name of the book of where this is from. Since I cannot clean my own house, it has become to some extent no longer my own house. It has slipped from my control, a very good thing since Celia takes far better care of it than I would have done even in the days when my arms and legs still work. She cleans between all the buttons on the antiquated push-button stove so that our fingers no longer stick and release with a schloop every time we want to go from hot to warm. She keeps the sliding glass door so clean that after my daughter walked through and shattered it, we had to paste a hedgehog decal onto the new one to ward off future incursions. But she does not know where things belong, like the fish-shaped soup tureen on the sideboard. Although this should be placed sideways, she invariably points its pouty face out into the room. At first, I turn it back after she left. Later, when I got too weak, I'd simply look at it and fret. At length, insight struck, oh, wait a minute, Whose fish is this anyway? It's mine, I know. When my friend Molly left Tucson, she gave it to me to hold until her return. But she liked Seattle better, and I've got the fish by default. But it's Celia's fish too. She's the one who takes care of it, and apparently it should stare out at us brutally, even though I think it looks dopey that way. To relinquish, not merely control, but the claim to control. Permitting someone to do what she does best in the way she chooses to do it. And viewing the outcome as collaborative rather than right or wrong. 
balances a relationship that might otherwise be skewed by issues of ownership or prerogative. Celia and I have a hollow, cream-colored stoneware fish. If you want to help us with its upkeep, you may have it too. If no one drops it, it will outlast both Celia and me. One day, however, it's bound to be smashed and then no one will have it anymore. Things come to us and we cherish them for a while and then they or we are gone. When Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon, it is not the thingness of our possessions he repudiates, but our relationship to them, the way that instead of simply tending them and putting them to use, we grasp them with knuckles turned white, clasp them against our chest and invest them with the power to represent our worth. So the, the, um, the Buddha talked about relinquishment and renunciation and I've been thinking about it and contemplating it a lot because it is such an exquisite energy, it's such a beautiful energy, that capacity to let go, to relinquish, to renounce. And it's one of the energies of the perfections of the ten paramis. For those of you who are new to the practice, when the Buddha decided to become a Buddha, he saw these energies and realized that in order to become a Buddha, he needed to perfect them. And renunciation was one of them, or relinquishment is one of them. One of the ways that I've practiced relinquishment, which is another way to say that I've, I've um, um, uh, um, practiced letting go, is around the precepts. I mentioned to you earlier, I think was it at the question and answer period this morning, that when I was young I stole a lot. And I didn't just steal from big stores, I stole from little stores, from small owners. And I was out of control. And I feel a great deal of remorse. I stole for a long time, probably from eight years old until I was 20, 20 something. So because there was that deep conditioning, I am super sensitive around things, taking things. And you, I travel a lot, I stay in people's homes, and I'll watch my mind look at something in someone's home, and I'll see it say, you know, they probably wouldn't miss this. And even like even something small, like a pen, you know? And I just have so much joy in seeing it and being able to relinquish that impulse. And I'm diligent at it. I'm diligent about not taking what is not freely offered. And the Buddha said that we can practice this letting go of attachment, of letting go of wanting, and of clutching, particularly in the practice of the precepts. So, to refrain from harming life. In, in, um, our, in our life, it, it might mean, depending on how you want to practice that, to not kill any spiders or ants or mosquitoes or flies. So, the practice of not killing mosquitoes, living when I did in Northampton meant before I went to bed, I went around with my yogurt container and piece of cardboard going around, catching the mosquitoes and taking them downstairs because I didn't want to open the window up where I was and taking them downstairs and out of the door. 
And honestly, I can say that there were many times I was totally irritable practicing this letting go of taking life. And at the same time, I got to see just what we know already, which is when there's a refraining from harming, there is a different and deeper connection to life. That by refraining from harming and taking life, we feel our relatedness to the life of those animals that we haven't taken their lives of in a different way. And, and that begins to extend to other forms of life. So this is what the Buddha said. It's so beautiful. And it's also um, sikes in with the, um, connects in with the practice of seeing our beautiful qualities. There is a case where a disciple of the Noble One, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from taking life. In doing so, she gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless number of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression, to limitless number of beings, he gains a share in limitless freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, and freedom from oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, unadulterated from the beginning, that is not open to suspicion will never be open to suspicion and is unfaltered by knowledgeable contemplatives and practitioners. I think that's so beautiful. In refraining from harming life, we are giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless number of beings. And then he goes on to say that about relinquishing, taking what is not freely offered, which is a deep practice we know of um, how we relate to the earth. And then, you know, looking at our relationship to sexuality and where it is we want to relinquish perhaps the ways that we continue to objectify people's bodies, you know or the ways that we defend ourselves from being open, the ways that we stop ourselves feeling our natural sexuality. There's different inquiries around how to practice it so that it's in right relationship and freedom from oppression, freedom from harm. And then speech, which I'm going to talk about later. And um, and um, taking um, losing mental balance through mind-altering substances. So when we talk about attachment, we can begin to challenge our attachment. The Buddha says by really taking the practice of the precepts and um, uh, intentionally, like I have taken one precept to work on for a month, like saying, for this month I'm working on this precept. And I'm really going to work it. I'm going to be conscious of it. I'm going to be aware of it. How can I refrain from taking life? You know, and of course that becomes really large. So I love water and I used to love long showers, but I refrain from taking mostly every now and again, but mostly long showers because I know that by doing that I'm contributing to the damming of wild rivers. And by contributing to the damming of wild rivers, I'm contributing to the extinction of salmon because salmon aren't being able to make the runs up so many of the rivers. So beginning to just take particular practices of relinquishment and then seeing 
just the spaciousness and the open-heartedness that comes from it. It, it, is, it, it, it really is a strength to the heart that is totally delightful. So that's why the Buddha says that the practice of renunciation is a practice that brings profound peace and joy and freedom. Relinquishing and renouncing attachment, claiming, owning, desire, wanting and not wanting. Let's see, I think that's, I think that's probably enough. So I want to end, I want to end with um, uh, a story that I love about, um, about relinquishment. This there are many interpretations of the story. Desmond um, Bishop Tutu um, talks about it. He says, there's someone in a car driving on the road going to the end of the tip of um, South Africa, the Cape of Good Hope. And if you've been there, I don't know if any of you have been to South Africa, it's a very, very, very windy road. And the road is, it's very sheer. It's like there's sometimes not even a barrier and that the drop is down to the ocean. And so this car is driving and an animal uh, crosses the road and the car swerves to avoid it. And tumbles down the side of the cliff. The driver manages to um, extricate herself from the car and grab onto a root. She looks down and there are these crashing waves and she knows that she doesn't have the strength to climb up back to the road and that the root is giving way pretty quickly. So with all of the open heart she can muster, she calls out and says, anyone there? Anyone there? If you know, if you hear me, I promise you I'll believe you. Anyone there? <laughs> so Desmond Tutusu says, there's this deep voice that says, Yes, yes, my dear one, I hear your voice, I'm here. And she says, can you save me? Please save me. And he says, yes, I promise I will save you. Let go. She says, anyone else up there? <laughs> That's us as well, you know, <laughs> anything but relinquish. <laughs> uh, so let's sit for a moment. 